Hey, this is Chris Trump. Aloha and welcome. You're listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on The Probiotic Life. Hello, hello. Welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. How are you guys all doing today, guys and gals? Um, how's your probiotic experience going? Are you applying some of this stuff that you've heard? Is it interesting to you? I'd love to know more about what you want. But are you getting out in nature? Are you at least getting out into your garden and observing what's going on, the interactions? Are you digging up that soil and smelling uh, for that sweet smell of, of uh, lively soil? Well, as I said, I want to know what you want. I want to know how I can serve you better. So reach out to me. Uh, let me know what you want and I will do my best to get that to you. What I am committing to is weekly episodes of The Probiotic Life. Going to step up my game a little bit. Um, I'm learning lots of things at the moment. I'm learning, I have been learning how not to do a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, But, you know, you keep moving forward and that's what I'm doing. And um, just want to say thank you to my wife again. She's uh, supporting me in that so much. Um, Next week, we have Christina Campbell, the author of The Well-Fed Microbiome Cookbook. And I'm going to be doing a giveaway. So stay tuned for that. But today, we have Graham Sait. Now, if you haven't heard Graham talk before... You're in for a big treat. He connects all these things about soil health and climate change and human health. Um, He is a prolific writer and speaker. And um, I just do an intro with him, basically. And unfortunately, my computer crapped out and it cut off for like about a minute or two. So basically what he says, I just ask him to give us a bit of a story. How did he get involved in doing what he's doing? And he lets me know that his daughter Rachel was in a horrific car accident and was in a coma for three months. So you'll hear a little bit of a pause in the recording there, um, but that should make sense to you now. So without further ado, here is the interview with Graham Sait. Our guest today is an internationally acclaimed author, educator, who co-founded Nutritech Solutions. He has written hundreds of published articles and a popular book, Nutrition Rules. He has formulated many of the soil health and human health products for which Nutritech Solutions is renowned for. Uh, He is the founder of the Radiance Festival, which is a six-day wellness conference. Uh, He is a powerful presenter who speaks at conferences and seminars around the globe. His inspiring presentations are often described as life-changing. Welcome to the show, Graham Sait. Good to be here. Nice to, nice to have a chat. Yeah, thanks. And uh, you're over on the east coast of Australia, is that right? 
Yeah, it's just on the Sunshine Coast, actually, although I don't spend that much time here. I've been 33 countries in the last 12 months, so it's a tremendous amount of travel. Just got back from the UK um, just three days ago and in two weeks' time head off to the, U the US and Canada tour. So that takes me through to Christmas, so it's been a busy year, to say the least. Wow. And so um, just for people who haven't heard about you before, uh, I've been very inspired by some of the stuff that you've done and especially talking about uh, compost. But um, give us... ...horrifically injured and massive brain injuries and lay in a coma for three months. And we sort of hung in there and they were wanting to, they were, you know, because she was a, an organ donor, they were coming to us and saying, look, she's only ever going to be a vegetable. We've got someone waiting on her eyes and someone waiting on her kidneys. So it was kind of like a total and complete nightmare. But we hung in and didn't turn the machine off. Um, and she stabilised and we sort of hoped. And then she got, after three months, she actually got everything worse. And the machines we'd come to kind of know and and, and hate that she was connected to were all beeping and they said, well, this brain death is approaching. So I'm not conventionally religious, like a church-going kind of person, but I have no doubts about the existence of, of, of a God. And so I, so I kind of made a deal for the first time in my life that should she survive, I would do something of a real value. At that point, I've been quite successful in, in a whole different kind of business um, arrangement. Uh, and so in 20 minutes after making that deal, um, she came out of the coma and she actually made headline news across the country as the miracle child. And I had a sleepless night that night determining what I'd do of value. And I had, had developed, my degrees are actually in psychology and sociology, but I developed a passion for soil science and a recognition of the link between soil health and human health. And at that point, I wasn't aware of this hugely powerful link between soil health and planetary health in relation to climate change. That's been a more recent understanding. Uh, and so I actually formed Nutritech the next morning, uh, came up with the whole concept with the logo and that I've become an expert in soil, animal and human nutrition and take the company multinational. And that's what I've done. We're in 55 countries and we won the business of the year here in Queensland last year. And so that's been the journey. So we've got a human health division, a home garden division, an agricultural division and, of course, our education division. And I think our education division is probably the most important. We've got one-day and two-day and half-day and four-day and five-day courses, and we conduct them all over the world. And that's my role. Um, I, I, that's what I travel and teach. discovered it late in life that I have a passion for teaching and inspire people to change. And so meet at governmental levels and meet prime ministers and ministers of agriculture and so forth, ministers of the environment in many countries, uh, and try and drive home the urgency uh, for change. I mean, most people have got no conception of the seriousness of this climate change story. Um, for example, I'll just give you some sort of rough, I mean, this is purely harsh stuff, but it's at, the, at one end of the spectrum. Yeah, go but ahead. Professor Guy McPherson, for example, is he's probably linked in the top, he's from the he's professor of climate change at Arizona State University, he was in New Zealand uh, about nine weeks ago, 10 weeks ago, and he was asked on primetime television, they said, look, Guy, you're an expert in this field. Where do you think we're heading? He looked down the barrel of the camera and he said, look, I want every one of you out there to do begin now and do everything on your bucket list because I'm sorry we've left it too late. In 10 years, there are no humans left on the planet. And don't leave it for nine years and 364 days because the shit hits the fan way before then. So, I mean, that's one really grim side of the equation. But I had a professor at my, just this most recent, uh, visit to the UK, a professor attended my course who heads a scientific think tank, uh, and he said the smartest and brightest scientists in the UK are part of that think tank, 
uh, and he's over dinner, he confided that one in five of his membership, so 20% of the brightest science brains in the UK, believe there's no people here by 2030. So that's not too far from that 10 years. That's only 12 years away. Wow. So that's that's kind of how serious, serious this. Professor James Hansen is the number one climate change scientist. He's a NASA scientist of 49 years standing. He heads climate change at NASA. Uh, his claim to fame is really complete and totally unique. His claim to fame is that in 49 years of a science that involves multiple predictions on a yearly basis, he's never, ever, ever been wrong. So, I mean, that's unparalleled. It's unprecedented. I mean, Einstein was wrong hundreds of times. And so when he told us three years ago, five years Three years ago, that we've got five years left, so we've got two years now. Not till there's no world, but till we have a world that's we can never that is irrevocably changed, and we can never get back to where we were. It's a very, very different place. It's a shadow of what it used to be. So there's an urgency, is what I'm driving home, and that is what I've been, you know, frantically travelling much more than what I'd like to do. I've got a couple of farms I'm teaching all these principles on, and I'm absolutely loving the farming process and just teaching here, but but I feel driven. I can't sit back on the farm in and, and, and three years' time and say, I wish I'd done something because I'm doing everything I can do and I meet people, I'm just one of many, and we're all frantically running around the globe trying to make a difference in the, in the limited time frame. We don't have to have uh, a complete reversal of some of the things we've been doing wrong in that couple of years that's left. We just need to have the tipping point where the majority of people recognise we need to change. That's the key thing, according to James Hansen. So, uh, and I see this change as really positive changes happening on a really large scale. I mean, I've, I've been training, for example, uh, I just met with the founder of the largest food producers on the planet. They're called Green Yard Farms. They've got a turnover of 6.5 billion uh, US dollars. And I met with him in Belgium just last Monday. So, um, and he's very keen for me to come back in, in February and train all of their people. Uh, I've been training the people from Dole, the people from Driscoll's Berries. These are the largest growing operations. Woolworths in South Africa trained all of their growers. They launched Farming for the Future, where all the food is grown with our nutrition farming principles. And it's been a tremendous success story. So I've had meetings now with five supermarket chains in the UK who are looking at heading down a similar path. So change is happening. It's just whether it can happen in the two-year time frame, and that's the urgency. That's right. I mean, when you say these sort of things, uh, Graham. Some people, uh, they, they just get paralysed and they don't know what to do. Um, and that's, and exactly, what that's exactly it. And the, and the whole, that's a very good point. And that's exactly the issue. Most people, when confronted with something of that enormity, just actually just shut down and drink beer and watch sport. Um, and, and that's because they think there's nothing they can do. And what I frantically teach is that there is a huge amount that every individual can do. And the biggest part of that link is simply understanding that when we talk about, you know, the largest, most dominant gas that's thickening the blanket of gases, and the greenhouse blanket is absolutely essential. We wouldn't be here without that blanket of gases. That creates a livable climate for human beings. But the blanket's a little thicker than it's been previously, and we're the, the root cause of that. Uh, and so the, pro the dominant gas is CO2. And the thing to understand is that, for a start, you know, there's a thing called the carbon cycle. You can't actually make new carbon. It's the same carbon molecules that have cycled between three places since the very start of time. So the, the majority of carbon is stored in the soil as organic matter. Then there's carbon-based life forms, humans, plants, animals, and then it can become the gaseous form. And it cycles between those three places. Now, 
the big problem here, if we if you do the sums, is that if we talk gigatons, which is thousand billion tons, we find that um, 250 gigatons of CO2 we've introduced since the middle of the Industrial Revolution in 1860. So that's 250 has been humankind's contribution, not counting what we've done to our soils. Um, so that's just everything else, coal-fired power stations, industry, and so forth. But the, we've gone from 5% down to 1.5% through mismanagement of our food-producing soils. And that two-thirds or three-quarters or whatever um, represents 476 gigatons. It's almost double the amount that was in the soil that's now in the atmosphere compared to the coal-fired power stations, the industry, and everything else we've done. So when you, when you've changed the way that you produce food and changed the way that you farm or the, or the way that you garden, because minding your own plot uh, is the biggest single contribution that a single person can make as a cog in the wheel. If you sit down with a calculator and do the sums and say, okay, I, I looked after my yard, I built, I increased organic matter because I composted and I did cover crops and I did whatever, and I built 1% organic matter, do the sums per square meter of what that represents. Because when you build organic matter, and of course you can measure it with the soil test, you can't say, oh, I made some new carbon, that's impossible. What you did was step into the carbon cycle and sequester what would have otherwise been in the atmosphere. It is direct carbon sequestration. So thankfully, that whole a simple concept has been recognised at governmental level where the French government now, for example, in the most recent Paris Climate Change Conference, the big one, their central initiative was called the 4 in 1000 initiative. That means that's, that's a direct recognition of the link between soil carbon and climate change. And what they're saying is that if you can incentivise your farmers to build rather than the current model of losing organic matter a little bit each year, to change the way that you farm and, and to build 0.4% organic matter is the lofty goal that you're trying to achieve each year. That's 4 in 1,000 is 0.4% organic matter. But if we could do that, uh, they're showing that in 10 years you've not, not held climate change in one place, you've actually reversed the equation. Uh, and so, you know, it's, 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 there's 22 countries that have signed on to that that um, four and one thousand initiative. Unfortunately, Australia is not one of them, but or the US certainly is not one at the moment with Donald Trump at the helm. But twenty-two countries have, and it's a movement, and there's a recognition that that's the way we can save the day. That we can actually reverse. Currently, we're talking reducing emissions, and we're saying that you know let's try and hold it at two degrees. Well. One degree we're at at the moment, I've been in over 30 countries and there's no one that's not hurting with just what seems like a tiny increase of one degree. Two degrees is where we're saying we're going to try and lock it in and not, you know, see if we can cut emissions and keep it at two degrees. But two degrees isn't double one degree, it's exponential. We've got no conception of where two degrees is going to be. We're seeing massive changes at one degree. Uh, there's going to be so much more in terms of extreme weather events and all sorts of issues at two degrees. And and really, we've talked about cutting emissions, and last year was the largest increase in emissions in recorded human history. So we're not all we've done is talk, um, but the but the other story of saying, okay, let's all work together, let's start building organic matter rather than losing it. That's a way to actually save the day, and that's my message uh, globally and meeting at governmental level and driving home. We've got to change, and and it doesn't stop there because there's another major issue relative to our soil and our ongoing viability as a life form on the planet. And that is, at our current rate, again, it's all about how we produce food, at our current rate of soil erosion, which is three to five tonnes of topsoil lost each year, that's the global figure, we've got 60 years on the zero topsoil. Well, you can feed, you know, in 10, 10 years' time <clears throat> with 10 billion people with a third less topsoil, we can't feed them. You can say, oh, hydroponics, yeah, that'll feed a tiny, tiny percentage. 
and with pretty ordinary food because hydroponics isn't very good quality food. Um, no, it's, it's a huge issue. There needs to be a soil health restore, restorative initiative at governmental level in every country yesterday, essentially, and that's what I'm trying to drive home and trying to get that message out there. That's fantastic, yes. Graham. You know, um, you're working basically from the top down, and um, there's so many things that you just uh, mentioned, but uh, uh, a real revelation for me was the fact that it's capturing that carbon in the soil in the form of compost, in the form of humus in our soil. We can actually do that rather than being like, what are we going to do? Let's just, you know, turn off a few lights and maybe not drive our car as much. There's actually yeah. something that's um, significant. Um, and and we significantly can, more powerful. Yeah, yeah we can, we can actually start doing that right now today everybody can compost a little bit you know i teach composting workshops and there are people yeah. who who they generally want it they genuinely want to know what to do uh they just need a little bit of help to get started and this what the, 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 the comp is good work it's good work you're doing because the composting story is so big i mean people think you know composting is i mean it's really just a natural process of decomposition where we step in and with a bit of science and improves that process to create stable humus to stable organic matter and people think oh you're so i put on that compost and i introduced some stable humus but i'll give you some figures because there's a friend of mine called ron nichols who heads the health division of the u.s department of agriculture and he's got quite a lot of money being thrown at him recently because of this recognition of the sure. link between humus and change um but he they did a tr some trial work where they used one ton per acre which is not a lot of compost it's nothing like you what you put onto a home garden one ton per acre on multiple sites in two states over three years. Now, just so you know, to, to take 2% organic matter up to 3%, that takes 20 tonnes of compost if you just factor in the amount of carbon. It takes six tonnes of pure carbon, and that takes about 18 to 20 tonnes of compost to create 1% increase in organic matter. Per so, acre. Yes, per acre. And so they were putting on three uh, three tonnes, not 20. So the increase at the end of that time, should the average increase should have been about 0.15%. The average increase was 1.38%. It was nine times higher than what it should have been. And that's what compost, that's the great gift of compost. It's not the carbon that you stabilised when you made the compost. It's the fact that you've reintroduced an inoculum with 30,000 organisms, many of which are missing from your soils. And those organisms go to work, take some of the exudates, pump, are constantly pumping down glucose and giving it away. You know, they're at the juncture of the most important process called photosynthesis, the plant makes this glucose building block of all, of, for, for every carbon-based life form, it all comes from photosynthesis, that starting point of making that glucose. Plant uses that glucose for everything that it does, pumps half of it down to the roots every night because the roots need it, but then the really interesting thing happens because it exudes one third of its total production of glucose, its main building block, its, its most important single substance, it gives it away. And there at the juncture of the world's most important process, it's the only source of food, is, is, is the green plant, um, is the most important principle. And that principle is give and you shall receive. It applies to us as much as it applies to that process. And, you know, if you look up the definition of the word science, it's adherence to natural laws and principles. And, and, and that's pretty much an example of a natural law and principle. The plant's giving away its most important substance, but in return, uh, these organisms it's feeding uh, they, they deliver minerals, they protect, they break down uh, organic matter, they take some of that glucose and turn it into humus, and that's a process that's happening 24-7. Um, and so 
many of those organisms, even in a town garden where you've used chlorinated water, you've, you've over time you've really knocked back a bunch of those organisms. Often you've overworked your soil and you've disturbed and sliced and diced, sliced and diced the most important component of the soil. You know, there are many creatures in that soil, but in this context, the absolutely critical important component is called fungi, beneficial fungi. They're actually called cellulose digesting fungi. So so you can take some compost, throw it in a corner, take some lawn clippings, throw it in a corner, and a month later, you've got three months later, you've got some compost, and that's a bacterial compost because lawn clippings are simple, easy, green food for bacteria, and they've created this compost. You can put it on your garden. You can put so much on it. It's equivalent of about 100 tonnes per hectare, uh, and you can see three shades change in colour. It's got three shades darker. Six months later, you come back to that garden, it's back to where it was. That's called active humus produced by bacteria that has a shelf life of six to 12 months, and then it oxidizes and goes back as part of the carbon cycle. That's not what the French government, for example, are going to pay farmers to produce. The critical component is you've got to have fungi that take some of that humus, that make some themselves, that wrap it with their long strands called hyphae, tie it into what's called a clay humus crumb, and stabilise that humus, and now it stays and it keeps out of the atmosphere for 35 years instead of one year. So the sad story is that when we understand how important these beneficial fungi are, every soil life test that you do on every bit of farm land, and probably on most home gardeners if you could afford to do one, there's no fungi, really minimum numbers of fungi that have been absolutely thrashed. They don't like to be sliced and diced with over-cultivation. They don't like chlorinated water. They don't like farm chemicals. They hate herbicides. They hate fungicides. They hate nematicides. And consequently, the most important creature on the planet uh, has been decimated. The actual single most important creature on the planet at this point of time, and this is something that even home gardeners can reintroduce to their soils, is a creature called mycorrhizal fungi. little creature burrows into the plant root, expands out with this massive network of very, very fine, actually invisible, you can't see them without a microscope, um, hyphae, they call it, which effectively, because they now become part of the plant, sort of like a parasite, except they don't take, they give, um, and you've extended your root, your original root system tenfold. Um, these organisms just perform these amazing roles of, of mining minerals that are immobile, so they reach out and give you ten times extension to go and get minerals like phosphate and zinc that are very immobile in the soil and, and don't just float around in soil solution. They produce biochemicals to stimulate the, the immune system of the plant. They produce biochemicals that kill root knot nematodes. They mine minerals like potassium that can be trapped inside clay complexes. But most importantly, and this was only discovered, in 1996 by a woman called Dr. Sarah Wright, this, these creatures produce this sticky carbon substance called glomalin. And what we now know, and Sarah didn't know how important that finding was when she first discovered it, we now know that glomalin is a triggering, triggering mechanism for all of the organisms that can build humus in the soil. It really puts them into hyperdrive. We now know that that one substance by one organism is responsible for 30% of all of the humus in the soil. And that creature's been 90% knocked out of our soils. Now, it costs, like, in farming, about $20 a hectare to bring it back. So we need to have government step in and, and, and incentivize farmers to bring it back. And then, of course, you can't just put it there and kill it again. You've got to change some of the things you're doing that have killed off all those organisms. And in the home garden, that's too much digging and, and too much chlorinated water. So bringing back mycorrhizal fungi is a huge thing that you can even do in your home garden to make a huge difference. Uh, literally the most important creature in the world because 30% of the humus, if we could bring them back and build that, that, that turns the whole thing around. So it's a, it's actually simple in that equation, but, but not so because 
many of our practices are just going to kill them again unless we change the way that we farm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was really encouraged talking to um, a fellow by the name of Drake. He is a Korean natural farmer um, and yeah. teacher in Hawaii um, talking about, um, well, you just talked about before the, the, the difference between one degrees and two degrees um, warming is yeah. ac actually exponential. And he related it back to how the microbes, they're exponential as well. So we actually have a solution um, that can breed up faster than we can actually do anything. And that's what your um, company does, isn't that right? The um, Nutridec Solutions. Yeah, it's very much part of it. We introduce, uh, we've got mycorrhizal products, we've got you know other beneficial fungi like trichoderma and so forth. And we also have this kind of, well, it's not new, and it's part of what that, the Korean guy was probably involved in, is these uh, an beneficial anaerobes that can that can build humus very quickly and protect from disease and deliver minerals and so forth. Um, probably first developed by Professor Higa from Japan called EM, but now there's various versions of them and people can make, they often call them indigenous microbes or whatever, but you can brew them up yourself on farm. We have a product called BAM, which is beneficial anaerobic microbes that a remarkable kind of resilience it gives the plant and it starts, you know, the hot, you can put, put it on crop residues and it will convert them into humus very, very quickly. So there's all sorts of things, even, even simple little creatures like the earthworm. Everywhere I travel, I ask the question, you know, speaking sometimes to as many as a thousand farmers at a time, I ask the question, how many of you got earthworms left in your, far, in your soil? And about one hand in 50 comes up. I mean, we've killed off our earthworms. Well, earthworms that compost four times faster than any other known composting method. You want to get humus back in your soil quick, you bring back earthworms. They are of such immense value. I mean, they, they incubate a completely unique group of organisms in their gut that are of tremendous value for plant health and plant resilience, and you can't get them from anywhere but an earthworm. What comes out their back end has got 10 times more nitrogen, seven times more potassium, uh, five times more phosphorus, three times more magnesium, and one and a half times more calcium. It's, they're literally a, a fertilizer machine. They actually are even a lime works because they produce, a, they've got a little gland that produces calcium carbonate and that adds it to everything that comes out their back end. If you could achieve the holy grail of 25 earthworms per shovelful uh, as an average on your farm or in your home garden for that matter, um, <clears throat> that soil's producing, those earthworms are producing 300 tons per hectare of this. Well, there is actually no compost better than earthworm castings or earthworm compost. There was a trial done here in Queensland where they compared seven different forms of, of compost and quite a big trial by the Department of Primary Industry and the absolute standout. In fact, it was 20 times better than number two, which was composted cow manure, um, was vermicompost. And vermicompost, was, well, at one ton per acre, it outperformed 300 kilos of DAP, which is a normal chemical fertilizer used in vegetable production. I mean, it, there's nothing comes close to, to vermicompost. And you've sort of got that happening in your soil if you can bring the earthworms back. So we teach people there are real simple things you can do um, to bring them back into your soil. And of course, you can have your own worm farms. So simply we teach how you can take a thousand litre container you could pick up for $100 and turn that into something that could absolutely convert your garden into a Garden of Eden um, for about the total investment of about $250. Just do it yourself. There's a way you can turn a thousand litre container into uh, into a worm farm, uh, you know, and you can and you separate off the lower segment, and you've got 100 litres of worm juice, which is the microbes produced by the by the earthworms. It's wonderful to put through your garden beds and so forth. So yeah, there's there's so many things, and we have. 
four and five day courses that are almost like a degree course that just teach and really excite people about the fact that they can get involved and they can make a difference. When I, when I spoke for the first time in LA, there was a uh, the group of people that brought me over immediately responded, young people between 20 and 30, and formed an organisation called Kiss the Ground, which is, you know, this idea of rediscovering a, a reverence for the importance of the soil. Um, and they're now gonna, there's a major movie coming out, a full-length movie that I helped finance um, that comes out, you know, general release movie that comes out in about March next year. Um, and they've got a movement, a really large movement. In fact, they went to France and had meetings with the French government and helped them make that decision about the 401,000 initiative. So there's some wonderful things happening and everyone can get involved and we really need to because there is simply no place for apathy. There, this, is, this is the time to stand up and do something if there was ever a time. That's right. And um, in fact, I hope to get Finian on this podcast soon because yes. he, he has been such an inspiration and I think yeah. there is a whole um, generation, um, you know, from sort of my age and younger, the um, the new generation of people who they actually want to do something. And I think a lot of lot of times we we want to know like how to help. So composting can help. But um, I think the other part that that I'd like to talk about is connecting it to actually what is it? How is it going to benefit me? How is it going to benefit? Yeah, um, you know what I'm doing and. I talked a lot of a uh, lot to people about health. So can we go into a little bit about how soil health actually what is the the mechanisms the stepping stones from soil health to human health not just healthy plans because that's sort of an well, idea. Well yeah it's massively important in that context. I argue that the home garden is the ultimate wellness tool. There is simply nothing more important than having a home garden. Now there are a variety of reasons for that. I mean the first thing is that, you know, there are issues with supermarket food. And I don't want to, I mean, I work with a lot of conventional farmers, so I don't want to knock anyone down or anything, but there are some realities that people need to know about. There were things that we weren't told relative to um, chemical residues on food, for example. We were told, yes, we did the test with the guinea pig and we showed that you can get away with four parts per million of diethane or five parts per million of glyphosate or whatever on that food. But there were two things that we weren't told that, that people need to be aware of. And the first of those is something called bioaccumulation. Now, we've got a two-phase detoxification system headed by our liver and, you know, if any kind of natural contaminant, a snake bite, mercury, arsenic, all of which are natural substances, the liver... Um, begins a whole process of detoxification. It can begin to try and neutralize that contaminant. But the liver has not seen the man-made chemicals, particularly some of them are quite unusual. Some of them are based on natural things, but, but many of them are completely man-made fabrications. And the liver looks at them and thinks, this doesn't look good. This chemical structure is not going to do the body much good. So it takes and pumps those chemical residues and stores them in fat cells. And that's where they accumulate. So we look at the one of the very early studies, the very first studies on our children and how the way we produce food is impacting our children. 1,400 school children, 700 from rural areas, 700 from urban areas, and they tested those children for the 13 most commonly used chemicals on our food. Fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, nematicides, a wormicide that every cattle producer pours down the throat of the animal. And to the horror of the researchers, couldn't find one child out of 1,400 who didn't have unacceptable levels of all 13 chemicals in their tissues, in their blood, in their urine, um, according to FDA standards. So our inheritance to our children has been a leukaemia ward in every city. The largest killer of children is now leukaemia, and there is no debates 
at all about the link between leukemia and childhood cancer. So uh, that's a huge story. That's that's called bioaccumulation. The second story is that if you understand anything about chemistry, you know that if you take two two chemicals and mix them together, or five chemicals and mix them together. Um, you get a new chemical, and no one has done that research. That's called the cocktail effect. Mm-hmm. So I met with a billionaire who lost two wives to cancer, and he funded some research looking at ten chemicals that are found on, you know, a snow pea, for example, or a tomato. They found the same chemicals are found on both of those two things, um, and he looked at a hundred combinations of those ten chemicals. Uh, he funded the research that looked at 100 combinations. Now, there are thousands because you're talking t- 10 chemicals between 1 and 100%. So there are literally tens of thousands of potential combinations. He looked at 100 of those combinations and discovered three new class 3 carcinogens, which means he proved in that two-year study that these new combinations, these new chemicals created, gave cancer to animals, but it's a little less ethical in that time frame to prove that it does the same right. for humans. So that's the second part that we weren't told about. So... You know, that's why having your own nutrient-dense garden where you've put some compost, you've put some lime, you've put some trace minerals, you've got, you're producing this wonderful food. And then the key thing that people have not recognized is the second downfall to buying your food from the supermarket is how much you lose during shelf life, during when it's stored on the shelf. I mean, the moment you pick a snow pea, in 12 hours, you've lost 50% of the vitamin C, for example. I mean, it's phenomenal, the losses. People think that frozen food is junk food. Frozen peas are usually frozen within 90 minutes of picking. You will you will never eat a pea off the shelf that's, that's more, got more nutrient density really? than frozen wow. pea, which is weird. Yeah, that's the fact of it, because you only lose 5% of the nutritional value in freezing, but you'll lose much more than that within 24 hours once you put once you pick it, transport it, and sit it on the shelf. For a week later, you've got well under half of what should be in that food. But, but what you do with the home garden is you never pick your food and leave it sitting, you know, your fresh vegetables and leave it sitting in the fridge. You come home at night, directly before you're going to eat, you go out and pick your salad vegetables or your root vegetables, whatever you're going to eat, or your corn, which is corn's the fastest known loser of nutrition. 40% of its nutrient lost in the first 22 minutes. There's nothing wow. close to that. So you take, boil your water, put in some nice mineralized salt, some sea salt or some mountain salt, walk out there, strip your corn, drop it in there for 9, 10, 11 minutes, pull it out, cover it in butter, and you'll never taste it anything like it. It's just how it was supposed to taste. And so you've got champagne food at its most nutrient-dense and chemical-free. And, of course, the whole story of, um, you know, the free radical theory of death and dying and disease, there's this free radical theory of disease, uh, is about antioxidants. So we get our antioxidants from fresh fruit and vegetables and so many more antioxidants from food that you've picked and eaten within 10 or 15 minutes. There's no comparison. It is the ultimate wellness tool to own your own garden and to do yeah. it right. Well, just on a bit of a sidetrack, you talked, you mentioned uh, multiple times about water and about chlorine in the water or chloramine in the water. And um, you have uh, your book that you you have on your website or when you sign up for your newsletter, the Nutrition Rules. I was very interested to uh, yeah, read the, in, uh, the interview that you had with Dr. Patrick Flanagan uh, about water and, yes. and that, would, that just blew my mind. But is there anything that we can actually do to get to make our water healthier? Well, the, the most fascinating thing I've seen, I get approached obviously by people all over the world with their latest magic bullets or their great new fertilizer or whatever, and I never close my mind, I check everything. Uh, I got sort of stalked in South Africa by a group. Um, every talk I did, I, I, I travel there every year and all my talks are always sold out because I've been going there. They call me the father of biological agriculture. I've been going there 17 years. 
And South Africa is actually leading the world. We mentioned a whole supermarket chain I've trained over there, but they're leading the world in this uh, biological agriculture approach. But these guys have developed this water treatment where basically I argue that the single most important nutrient in the soil is not nitrogen, phosphorus or potassium. It's called oxygen. Uh, and really, that it's, it's the most important nutrient for all mm. living things, including us. We last for two minutes without it. But what they're doing is taking an Australian hand-wound UV tube, and when you run water around a UV tube, you actually create ozone mm. in the water. Then they combine ozone with hydrogen peroxide, and when you combine the two, you get this explosion of what are called oxygen radicals. It's like different species of oxygen. You think of oxygen as being one mineral or one element, but there's actually, uh, there can be lots of different forms of oxygen. And it's called peroxone when you combine the two. That's been used, you know, in some instances to clean water lines as a really kind of caustic kind of um, oxidizing agent, but they're not doing it like that. They're only putting it through. When you brew microorganisms in a tank, when you're going to brew up and make a compost tea or whatever, you brew them at six parts per million dissolved oxygen in the water. You use a meter and make sure that you're delivering and that's when you get the best response. Well, your whole irrigation water goes out at six parts per million of multiple oxygen species and you've never seen changes like it. I mean, I've never in my life um, seen such dramatic changes in soils. Soils that you couldn't push a penetrometer down more than, you know, there was a hard pan at about six or eight inches and you couldn't get beyond that hard pan when you're pushing a spike into the soil. Those soils, you can dig down two metres and you've got crumbly soil with earthworms down as far as two metres. It just transforms completely entire growing operations. The three largest, uh, most successful farmers who have just won the Farmer of the Year in each of their states respectively have all attributed it to a combination of me being their consultant and the use, and I'm not involved in this water thing, but then the use of this PuraCare water treatment device that's transformed you know, they never had earthworms, the earthworms are back in three months. So the whole soil structure changes. And it's kind of like a planet changing potential, but only relevant to irrigated soils, of course, but massively powerful. You know, when we talk about <clears throat> how we can build humus most rapidly, it's interesting because we've got, you know, grown body people, and you might be one of them, who are vegan and argue very convincingly. I had a very big argument with James Cameron, the film director at his house. He invited me there for a New Year's Eve party the year before last, and we had a massive argument. It was fun, but it was they thought we were going to come to blows, but it was just a debate uh, because him and his wife are vegans. They're frantic, they're rabid vegans, and I think that Avatar 2, 3, and 4 might just have a vegan theme. We'll see, because he's writing and working over in New Zealand on those movies as we speak, filming them at, um, at Peter's studio, Winter Studios over there. Um, but, you know, they've got all their arguments about, you know, how costly it is to produce meat. But the bottom line is, you know, I mentioned the definition of science being, being adherence to natural laws and principles. So if we can say, okay, what can we learn looking back? What, what are the most productive areas uh, in the history of mankind? Well, the most productive area ever in the history of the planet is, is the Great Plains in the U.S. They produce more biomass, more plant matter every year for thousands of years than any other area. The Nile Valley is second, but they were quite substantially ahead of the Nile Valley until we stepped in and messed that system up in, in less than 100 years. So thousands of years of this incredible productive soils that were messed up very, very quickly by us stepping into it. But then you analyse and say, how did they maintain that productivity for all of those years? And you find it was linked to the buffalo, huge herds of buffalo, predator effects. So you had your head next to someone else while you were chewing, so you weren't too choosy. But, and so massive amounts of dung and urine deposited, who's creating a seed bed and the poo containing a bit of biodiversity and the biology firing up and, and, and driving that system 
from that massive amount of stimulation from the urine and dung. dung. But the interesting thing, and here we're learning from nature, is that those herds never grazed below four inches. At four inches, they moved on, and a few months later came back to that same area. So what we're learning and what's hugely important here in terms of how we can save the day from a climate change perspective, because there's no way faster than, than undisturbed pasture land to build humus, and we can do it with animals. And so the point here is that the leaf is a solar panel that captures the sunlight and combines it with water and carbon dioxide and produces that building block of, of all life and then pumps some of that down into the soil and some of that glucose that's pumped into the soil, it turns into humus. So um, so the solar panel, the leaf, determines that whole process and, and, and the, the roots below are sustained by the leaf. So if you've got six inches of leaf above ground, you've got six inches of root below ground. We'll talk inches because that's what the Americans do. But... Uh, if, you, if you graze down to five inches, you've got five inches of roots. The, prune, the roots prune themselves in accord with how much food they're getting from above ground. So if you've got four inches, you've got four inches of roots. If you've got two inches, you've got two inches. If you've grazed down to a billiard top, uh, to, a, to a bowling green, which is most of this country, you've got no roots, you've got no system, you've got no humus building potential. Uh, and so the, the secret to learn from nature is to say, okay, let's copy that. As, as Alan Savory with his millions and millions of views on his talks has demonstrated you know, his work in that field. And that's called cell grazing or intelligent grazing or mob grazing or however you choose it. And whatever method you adopt, and there are many of them, the central principle is you never graze below four inches. You leave four inches of solar panel and that allows plenty of sugar, plenty of glucose to be pumped down to the soil from that little sugar-making machine the plant is and some of that becomes humus. And so uh, there's now people like Professor Christine Jones, a wonderful soil scientist from Australia mm. here, who's done absolutely Nobel Prize winning work and demonstrating that the fastest way to save the day is to use animals and use them intelligently and graze them intelligently. And every government should be incentivising the waterways, the electric fences that can, well, it's not always applicable, but in many areas we can start cell grazing, never graze below four inches and save the planet in a very short time. So veganism in that context, nothing wrong with it particularly if it's done intelligently. I mean, we test people in our courses and almost every vegan's deficient in B12 and often a couple of amino acids that aren't very well absorbed in zinc because zinc's much better absorbed from animal and a few other things. But if you are informed in your veganism, then it can be very healthy. But be aware that, that, that animals can save the day and may well be the key to saving the day. So you, someone's got to eat them, otherwise they don't exist. So, you know, there's a bit of a debate on that front. That's right. Well, I mean, we are in Australia, which is... Uh well known for its beer and its barbecues, and especially here in Western Australia, where we have about a million square kilometres and only about two million people, like we could we could actually build the soil really fast. In fact, change the ecosystem, and um, not even by changing what we eat, it's just changing the practices of how we produce our food. No, so easily, and it's and it's a win-win scenario because building humus in your soil. Well, the National Bank in Australia, that you know, the dominant mantra in agriculture has been how to you know get bigger or get out. And so people are going to the bank saying, Look, I need to borrow some money to buy my neighbour's land to get more efficient. And the bank, you know, goes through all the criteria and tick the boxes. Yes, you qualify, give the money. But then a really large percentage of those loans have been falling over. So the National Bank said, OK, what is it? Uh, what determines profitability in agriculture? So on 800 farms in the Hilston, Hilston region of New South Wales with the CSIRO and a couple of other catchment management authorities, they looked for three years, what determines profitability? Is it the amount of fertiliser you use? Is it the size of your tractor? Is it your accounting skills, your marketing skills? 
and to the absolute shock of the researchers, what they discovered was that the dominant driver of profitability in farming was the percentage of organic matter in their soil. Organic matter humus determined whether or not you made money or, or, or otherwise. It was, the, it was the real value of your soil was the percentage of organic matter. So if we're moving into an era where farmers will be incentivized, because we have to incentivize and we have to pay carbon credits very, very soon or we're not going to be here. We've got to incentivize farmers to do this thing. Um, the wonderful thing will be that you're, you're getting paid as a secondary income stream, which you need if you're farming, because it's really, really hard in agriculture with the huge increase in extremes um, to, to farm. You know, it's become, it was always a hard profession. It's become more difficult. So we did need to incentivize them. And so they get a secondary income stream for doing the right thing and building rather than losing humus. And then that stuff they got paid to build becomes their biggest profitable thing in their farm. So it's a really, really win-win thing. From, from our perspective, what you find is that nutrient density, which is the medicinal quality of the food we eat, is governed by humus. The higher the humus level, because the humus contains the organisms that deliver the mineral, every mineral has a microbe behind it. There are nitrogen fixers, there are manganese reducing organisms, there are potassium solubilizers, there are iron reducing, there's phosphate solubilizers, every mineral has a microbe behind it. The higher your humus levels, the higher the microbial counts, the higher the nutrient uptake, the greater the medicinal qualities and the healthier the whole planet becomes. So it's a really, really dramatic win-win scenario. And yeah. of course that can apply to your home garden or it can apply to the whole planet where we grow food. So let's just focus on that for a second, Graham. Um, the nutrient density in the plants, um, they're, yes. they're uh, associated with different microbes uptaking them or releasing those nutrients to the plant, and then they come into us, which are, we're similar to plants in, the ter in terms of our gut microbiome and the way they absorb it. Can you yes. unpack a little bit for us the way that we actually absorb nutrients in our bodies? Well, well, I'll just explain first. We call what we do nutrition farming. And nutrition farming is about minerals. It's really important to understand that there are certain balances between key minerals that determine the availability of each of those minerals. You've got too much of one thing, it shuts down two or three other things. If you put too much lime, which is a really important, calcium is a very important nutrient, but if you put more than what your soil can hold, then you shut down seven minerals. So if you don't have enough lime, then the uptake of seven minerals is, an, is antagonised and you don't you don't get good uptake. So it's a real mineral balance story. Then it's about the micros behind the minerals and the whole, uh, and then of course humus is the inter, interface between the two because the microbes live in humus. It was produced by them. It's this sweet smelling chocolate coloured substance that is the home base and the creation of microorganisms and their support system. So the whole system is interrelated. But as you correctly pointed out, there's such a tremendous the plant is pumping some of its sugar, some of its glucose that it makes from photosynthesis down to feed its external stomach because there's mass, most of the organisms in the soil live right beside the plant roots so they can get their feed of sugar every day. Uh, and because they're essentially the plant's external stomach, we have an internal stomach. In fact, it's a real, when we talk about microbes, it's a really interesting thing because you know the first cell, we came from bacteria. The first cell oozed from the Precambrian Ocean, sat there on the shore, thinking this is pretty boring, I can't do much. And so gradually developed the concept of tagging more and more cells together, all of which can do the same thing, but can communicate at sometimes thousands of times per second and create these multicellular creatures that are essentially who we are. Physically, we are 10 trillion cells in a community constantly interrelating with each other, and that's what we are. And then we've got a whole separate thing called a soul. But within our 30-foot tube that runs between our mouth and our anus called our digestive tract, there is 100 trillion. There's actually 10 times more, and that's called the human microbiome, 
10 times more of other creatures, 10 times more of cells, smaller cells, but there's 10 times more of them than there is of us. You know, we've, we perhaps should almost think of ourselves as a sack of microbes walking around because that's essentially what we are. But what we now understand is that those organisms, just as we're understanding in the soil, that every aspect of plant health is governed by this microbial life. They produce substances to stimulate immunity and all sorts of them. They deliver the minerals that support the plant and the plant's immune system and so forth. Well, it turns out that the health of this, this 100 trillion organisms is two kilos, but more than the weight of our liver living in that digestive tract affects every single aspect of our health, even our mental health. I mean, one of the graphic examples at one of my conferences recently, I shared the stage with a couple of quite famous Australian microbiologists, and they were talking about this new concept called fecal transplants. Now, they, one of them was doing work with animals, and they were, they were doing, working with chickens, for example, and, and other animals, but they cited one example where the chickens were all given the same food, same conditions, and one chicken just stood out. It was absolutely resilient. It was super productive. It laid an egg a day and so forth. And the other chickens were in varying state of sometimes struggling health. So they gave all the other chickens a really harsh antibiotic course that knocked out everything. They took the poo from the healthy chicken, reintroduced it into the bodies of the, the rest of the flock, and all of them became champion chickens. Uh, they've taken people now with bipolar disorder, given them that course of antibiotics, taken the poo of someone very healthy. They, they actually pay people to poo now so you can make a secondary <laughs> income stream if you're a bomb-proof person. Uh, and they take that, brew it up. They don't just take the straight poo and put it in. It costs $4,000. But I've got doctor friends, and many of them have saying they've never, they've seen complete transformations, long-term things like type 1 diabetes and and um, inflammatory diseases and the huge big rise in, in, um, in autoimmune diseases and so forth that disappear. Bipolar gone when you change the poo and you put someone wow. else's microbiome into you, a bulletproof microbiome into you. So that's how important that system is. And we have assaulted that system in much the same way as we've assisted, assaulted the organisms that surround the plant root. And we've paid the price on both, on both fronts. On the plant front, we've used more chemicals every year since we started putting chemicals into our soil. Every year we use more. Last year it was 14.7%. The year before, 14.1% increase. The year before that, 136 Every year more chemicals. I mean, we're talking thousands upon thousands of tons of toxic chemicals that we pour onto our food. But the sad story is that every year without exception, there's more pest and disease pressure. It's actually the definition of unsustainable, putting more and more on for less and less response mm. and poisoning your children in the process is a fairly sad story. But then we look at the human microbiome and we see the multiple things that affect. I mean, how does food stay in a, in a football field-sized stadium for two years on the shelf? Food lasts for two weeks, max, a week, unless you, unless you preserve it or salt it or dry it or whatever. What changed to allow the existence of these big money-making machines called supermarkets? It's called food-grade stabilizers. We put mm. 2.5% of something like sodium benzoate into our cornflakes, and the cornflakes last for two years on the shelf. And that's good for making money, but it's not good for consumers because those chemicals are there to kill single-celled spoilage bacteria. They don't differentiate. They don't stop working when the cornflakes goes down your throat. When your child has a spoonful of cornflakes, that 2.5% sodium benzoate is going to kill single-celled organisms that totally dominate your your health. Uh, and so we're co constantly compromising our health with uh, food-grade stabilizers and processed food. And then there's a whole variety of other things. The biggest, of course, is antibiotics because they're indiscriminate. I've got many doctor friends who's, who will tell me it's the worst thing we ever did. Yeah, there's times when they save lives, but we've misused and abused antibiotics 
um, to the point we've created, you know, the the organisms just develop new evolutionary dance steps in the face of these antibiotics, and we've got these resistant many, many tens of thousands of people die every year in hospitals that wouldn't have died just 15 years ago through the resistance, increased resistance. You can't beat microorganisms. You've got to learn to work with them. And the misuse of antibiotics has been a horror show because most food we eat has been plastered with antibiotics. Most chickens you eat have been pumped up. Every bit of pork, every bit of cattle have all been pumped with antibiotics. And those residues allow our organisms to develop resistance. You know, a little bit and every bit of meat you eat or whatever allows that resistance to develop. So we've got a real drama happening on that front. But um, the, 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 as I said, the parallel, uh, the substances produced by our gut organisms are, are in many cases almost identical to the substances produced by the organisms crowding around the plant root. So mm. they're looking after their host, the plant, and our organisms are looking after their host, us. And if we can recognise the importance of that microbiome and start looking after it and sort of if we look at the kind of things that we can do, we see, for example, I do a lot of talks on longevity. The longest living people on the planet, there are no exceptions, the longest living people in Asia at the moment are the Koreans, but you know, we look at the Hunsas, we look at the Georgians, uh, and we see all of them consume lacto-fermented food on a daily basis. So, so even if you weren't killing off your all-important life within with antibiotics and food-grade stabilizers and too much alcohol or drugs or whatever, because there's a whole variety of things, including the birth control pill that really seriously affects your gut organisms. Diet Coke is horrific, for example. Mm. Um, but even if you weren't doing that, every time you poo, you poo out some of this massive array of organisms and you were supposed to be repopulating them. And that's what the story of lacto-fermented food is. It can be kimchi, it can be sauerkraut, it can be Kefir, it can be whatever, yogurt, it can be, you can you can ferment anything, but the key is to have that in a daily diet, and it's, I teach in the courses how you can make yourself six months supply in 15 minutes of what I call a rainbow sauerkraut that takes advantage of another central principle for your health, and that principle is that every time you eat food, every meal, you try and make that, that, that meal a rainbow. You want to have the most intense shades of, of greens and purples and and reds and yellows and oranges and so forth because the basic story here, I call it defensive eating. It's understanding the principle. Um, why do? How can a plant stand there from 5 in the morning to 5 o'clock at night under full day of UV radiation and it wants the sunlight so it sits out there in the open uh, where every other carbon-based life form suffers free radical damage from UV radiation? How does a plant protect itself? Well, it turns out its main mechanism of protection it produces pigments, these intense colours, and the more intense the colour, the more powerful the antioxidant effect is. Mm -hmm. Literally, those pigments are powerhouse antioxidants that help the, the, the plant protect itself from disease and insects, but more importantly, protect it from UV radiation. And it just turns out, and of course, it's not accidental because it's part of this wonderfully interrelated thing called Mother Nature, but it turns out that they're the most powerful antioxidants for human beings. And each one of them is different. It could be carotenes in your... In your um, carrots, it could be a lycopene in your red capsicum or your tomato, uh, or it could be sulforaphane in your brassicas, or chlor chlorophyll in your beetroot, in your, um, or anthocyanins in your beetroot, or chlorophyll in your uh, spinach, or whatever. All of those pigments are different antioxidants. Some are fat-soluble, some are water-soluble, and your aim becomes just to make sure they're there on every plate. And then if you ferment food and you have those seven colours in there, uh, what you've created, basically, what's been shown with but there's now a bit of science behind fermentation. Basically, what you've done is increased the availability of everything that you've fermented fivefold. That's the finding. So 
the antioxidant value, the the, the vitamins and nutrients, amino acids, the, the the whole story, the phytonutrients, all of those things are increased fivefold when you put the micros behind the minerals, which is what you're doing when you ferment food. So, um, and you do that with the colors. So you've got all these powerhouse antioxidants all doing different things in your body, and now they're five times more available. Rainbow sauerkraut is just a killer health strategy that is so easy to do. It's yeah, fantastic. Thing we teach you know, we yeah. interviewed, um, I interviewed Sandor Katz a little while ago, um, that, uh, who yeah, wrote The so. Art of Fermentation, and I really love yes. his a- approach because it makes it really accessible for people. Um, like I yes. teach about composting, you know, if we want to just start doing one thing, what's one thing we can do today? We can make some sauerkraut. Or like you said, make some yes. stuff with different colors in it, the, the, the rainbow fermentation. And that's what I'm actually um, trying to inspire people to do is start with something simple. Start with a sauerkraut or some kvass or whatever. Just get it in your diet and because that's actually going to be um, helping yourself, helping your family, your community and the earth around you as well. Absolutely. And I was one of the things that's emerging as a major health strategy is something called so you can reintroduce via fermented foods, and that's called probiotics that you're bringing into your diet. But you can also uh, eat foods that are high in what are called prebiotics, which are specific carbohydrates and, and, and nutrients that support and feed up your existing microbiome so that you just fire up your, your, your gut life, basically. And I was in Western Australia doing a four-day course just of, about a month or six weeks ago, same with a good friend of mine over there. Uh, for the weekend, it was a long week. He had a long weekend over there a few weeks back, and um, he's got this home garden that he's probably spent hundred thousand dollars on, but it's the most state of the art. There's not one square inch of his home garden that's not growing things. He's got worm farms. He's got computerized um, compost tea brewing operations, and even his composting is computerized. And I said, it's just an amazing out thing. He grows. He's wonderful. There's I'd wonderful like to see food. That. But yeah, he alerted me to. Um, this South American, they call it the Peruvian apple, what's called the Yacon, Y-A-C-O-N. Uh, and he gave me a little pamphlet on, I'm sitting there just before I start the four-day course, staying at his place for the weekend, and then we headed off to stay at an Airbnb near that course. Um, but uh, I'm reading this thing, and it's just this insanely nutrient-dense plant, but the big story is that it's got the sweet, crunchy, absolutely delicious flavor. It's like an apple, when you slice it onto your salad, and you can do all sorts of things with it. You can even bake it, and it's beautiful. Mm. But... Um, but it's, but it's, see, the two most powerful and most well-researched prebiotic substances that stimulate your good guys are called fr- fructo-oligosaccharide, or FOS, and inulin. And there are some foods like onions and leeks and so forth that have quite good percentages of those particular carbohydrates in those foods. But this thing, its total sweet flavor is completely FOS and inulin. So it's like a total prebiotic. There's nothing, nothing, really, in fact, prebiotics are often made, it turns out, from yakon syrup and so forth. Wow. So, and, it's, and, it, and it doesn't impact the, the um, uh, diabetes. I mean, diabetes, I just read a study yesterday that one in two people in the US are now either pre-diabetic or got type 2 diabetes. It's the biggest plague disease. It's a bigger plague disease than cancer at the moment. So... Uh, one in three in Australia are theoretically pre-diabetic, so it's a massive issue. But this yakon is this sweet flavour, uh, like like maple syrup, that has nothing that that, that diabetics can have as much sweet as they like in that context. So, uh, so on the strength of that, I rang round and actually found a West Australian producer of yakon, and I've came back with four 20 kilo boxes 
for 700 of these rhizomes and my research farm is just filled up with the yak- we're just still trying to plant them now we've put them all in yeah. the pots and they've all sprouted they grow incredibly quick uh, and we're just because one of the interesting things he did with the aqua and this is really important because this is when you say say take take a blueberry the antioxidant value is one of the highest antioxidant fruits it's called the ORAC score the scientific measurement of antioxidants and blueberries are 2600 but if you dry a blueberry just like if you dry a goji berry uh, but a dry blueberry the 2600 becomes 10,000 it quadruples the antioxidant reading because you've just concentrated up the antioxidant has some effect. So what he'd done with these yak on is sliced them, put them in his food dehydrator, and weirdly the slice of this crunchy, long, sort of radish-like tube um, breaks apart, always in the same places, and forms what looks like a little leather hand-cut flower. It, it, it looks like a real someone sat there with a with a knife and cut this beautiful little leather flower, and it smells delicious. So it was six months old, the dried stuff that we were eating with a nice beer, and um, and 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 it's it's got a really delicious, sweet, savoury flavour. They're so saleable, and they're little flowers that are beautiful. It just forms this, breaks the edge and forms the centerpiece, like the center of the flower, with the petals. And every one of them, you've got a whole bag full of these leather flowers that are like like vegetarian biltong, basically, but really delicious and four times more concentration of those prebiotics. So it's so marketable. That's why I want to demonstrate it and, and grow thousands of them over here. Yeah, wow. That's, I'm definitely going to get onto that one. Yakon, hey? In Western Australia, they yeah. have it too. Yeah, that's where I got brought all the stuff back. So it's fantastic. Mm. So, Graham, um, you've travelled around the world. Um, it sounds like quite a lot, in fact. Um, yeah. What's What's one thing that we could take away um, that you see to help create a probiotic life? You see all these different cultures, all these people, different people trying different things. What's What's one takeaway that we could take away from your uh, your life experience? Well, the first thing is that, you know, you can pretty much pick the health of someone just standing behind them and looking what's on their shopping shopping trolley. I mean, you know, realistically, um, most of what you buy in the supermarket should be coming in the fresh produce department and and hopefully organic. But but either way, um, just understanding that that, that food-grade stabiliser is, you know, potassium sorbate or potassium benzoate, which is a warm benzene, those food-grade stabilizers are really toxic and they kill your good guys in your gut. And so the more processed food that your, your family's consuming, the unhealthier they are, the more damaged the all-important gut life. So that's the starting point to recognize that. The second thing is is that concept of eating lacto-fermented food. And it is so simple. I mean, literally, you could take, I'll just give you an example. You could take a red cabbage, a, 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 a green cabbage, um, some carrots, some capsicum, ideally, don't red, orange, and green, so you've got the three shades of colours in there. Some ginger, um, some always a little bit of garlic, um, some spring onions. One study of spring onions showed that the consumption of one spring onion a day reduced all forms of cancer. This is a study of 90,000 people. One spring onion a day reduced all forms of cancer by 71%. So how hard is it to chomp on wow. a spring onion? They're really nice. So you put them in there, you put some parsley, parsley, uh, interestingly, one in three people, we test do all these tests, people do we test minerals and heavy metals as part of a four-day course and you get a report card. We do blood pressure, blood sugar and such, so they get a bit of a feel for this of how much, like blood pressure, one in three people have got high blood pressure, which is a little bit of a time bomb for the likelihood of a stroke. But one of the, one of the root causes of blood pressure and what we try and teach in both agriculture and in your own health is that we get back to root causes rather than treating symptoms. Drugs treat symptoms. You've got 
high blood pressure, you go on blood pressure medication for the rest of your life and there's accumulated bunch of side effects. The reason for side effects is just understanding the drug treatment model is that you shut down something with every drug. Say, for example, the world's most widely used drug at the moment, which are the lipid lowering, the anti-cholesterol drugs. Their mode of action, all of them, there are nine on the market, $23 billion worth last year sold. Their mode of action is they shut down the building block for cholesterol. It's called mevalinate. Now, if without mevalinate, you can't make cholesterol and your cholesterol levels. Now, there's a couple of inherent fatal flaws in that argument. Number one is cholesterol is not a poison. Cholesterol is hugely important. Um, you have what's called a hormone cascade, for example, and the central building block at the top of that cascade from which everything is made, including testosterone, is cholesterol. So the first thing that happens 12 months into your anti-cholesterol-lowering drugs is you've got no libido. You've completely lost your sex drive because you have no testosterone. But testosterone is much more important than just sex drive. Sex drive is pretty important because you really should have a sex drive until you're 90 because it's a direct guideline of your overall health. But uh, but the testosterone story is more important than that because the, what happens is you hop out of a shower at about 50 and you catch a glimpse, unless you're standing there parading in front of the mirror, you catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror and you see these perhaps sagging muscles or, or whatever under your arm. You think, I'm eating the same food, I'm doing the same exercise. Where did these sagging muscles come from? And that's a classic symptom of a, 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 a impending or approaching testosterone deficiency because testosterone's most important role is it governs muscle integrity. So if you're seeing that little bit of sag under your arms or wherever else, under, the, under your elbows or wherever, um, it's, it's kicked in, what you've got to recognize is you've got one muscle and it's a fairly important one that goes boomph, boomph, boomph every second of your life. Uh, it, it's going to be looking pretty saggy as well because your heart muscle is the most important muscle in the body. If it's looking saggy on the outside, it's looking saggy on the inside. And heart, coronary heart disease, heart attacks are still the largest killer on the planet. And they are often hugely linked to testosterone. So you just took your mm. lipid lowering drug to protect your, theoretically protect your heart because of this actual faulty assumption that cholesterol is a poison and it's not. Um, Two things happen. You can't make testosterone anymore, so your heart becomes much weaker. And secondly, mevalinate's not just the building block for cholesterol. Mevalinate's the building block for a hugely important heart nutrient called coenzyme Q10. Some countries like Japan say there is nothing more important for your heart than coenzyme Q10. For brain cells and heart cells, the energy requiring cells in your body, you've got to have coenzyme Q10. It's the center of, of cellular energy. Uh, and you just shut it down because you can't make coenzyme Q10 without mevalinate. So, you know, it's just a, a really faulty model. It's it's a bankrupt model that we, uh, you know, the average American at 60 is on 12 medications. By 65, they're on 17 medications. The largest killer on the planet is heart disease with uh, black caviar's nose length behind as cancer about to take over. But the third largest killer used to be the fourth and now it's the third. sorry stroke used to be third now it's fourth the third new third largest killer is prescription medicine our medicine has become our third largest killer it is such a pathetic bankrupt system wow that we have, we have to make a change if we look at the comparable uh, science of veterinary science in 1900 a dog in australia lived till 18. dogs can live till 23 perhaps not some of the new hybrids but dogs we know can live up to 23 that's their genetic potential by 2000, with the advent of veterinary science and the vaccinations and the vets getting in bed with the pet food companies and delivering this enzyme-lacking dead food to our animals that were supposed to eat raw, meaty bones, the average age of a dog's come down to eight years. I mean, how can you walk around proudly as a veterinary scientist and say, oh, I took them down from 18 to eight? Uh, it's a pathetic joke, and it's part mm -hmm. of what we're seeing 
uh, in both medical science, veterinary science, and of course agricultural science. More and more chemicals every year, less and less response from poisoning the entire environment and our children in the process. We've got to change. We've got to get back to root causes and solve the problems, and it's easily doable. It's just that everyone's not been educated because there's no money in it. Uh, there's no money in not having a cancer industry and so forth. So it's not. It's being cynical, but it's sort of. It's sort of. If you look at marijuana. Medical marijuana is a ridiculously amazing drug. There is no, in fact, there is no drug like it. I was, I was, or no medicine like it. I was in South Africa, and a great friend of mine has just succumbed to metastasized prostate cancer, and he's been frantically trying, uh, trying everything to save himself. And he's met up with a doctor in South Africa who specialised in medical marijuana, and and currently it looks like it's actually worked for him because they can they can only find one spot of cancer left in him at this point. So really, really looking amazing. But talking to that woman, I spent a day with her and she's become quite famous over there. Um, but she pointed out, and what gave sent a shudder down my spine was this, she pointed out that there are actually 82 bioactive chemicals in marijuana uh, and there are 82 receptors on our cells for those 82 chemicals. There is nothing, nothing which is like a key to the lock. There's nothing, there's no, some things have two or three things and there's one, they might have 10 things and there might be two receptors. This is 82 biochemicals, 82 receptors. This wow, that's so is almost a God-given medicine and we make it, and we made it illegal, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, hopefully that's changing and is changing and, um, you know, I mean, you know, the real, you know, Neil Donald Walsh, so here's this journalist uh, down on his luck, he's lost his wife, he's lost his... He's lost his house, he's actually on the streets, and he's sitting there with a pen and paper at a park bench saying, why me? And the pen begins to write, or so the story goes. And that journalist's name was Neil Donald Walsh, and that book that he wrote from that conversation, as he called it, was called Conversations with God. And whether or not you believe he's conversing with God, you can read the book and find that some tremendously profound things wherever they came from. But in that first book, God says to Neil, theoretically, uh, what is wrong with you people? I gave you the perfect plant. You can build houses. You can build cars. You can. The fatty acid profile of hemp oil is totally unparalleled. The perfect balance of omega-6, omega-3, omega-9, gamma-linolenic acid, the perfect food-building substance. Um, and you made it illegal. You know, you can make clothes that outlast cotton. And it's a fantastic alternative to planting trees for paper and all of these things. It's just an insanely valuable plant that we made illegal. And it was really, I mean, if you look at the history of it, there was all sorts of vested interests that did that. And we've got to wake up and say, gee, we've got to change that. We've got to change it quickly. It's wake-up time is what I'm finding around the world. And thankfully, there is a, a wonderful awakening happening in every country in which you travel on every front. So that's the good news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it's really great to hear that good news that people are waking up. You know, uh, I feel like this is my contrib con contribution to this collective evolution, if you want to call it that, of actually yes. helping people to understand that it, it starts with you. We can make a change today. Choose um, healthy, good, organic if you can, or at least know your farmer, know where your food comes from. Start with some um, fermentation and maybe push a little bit against the, against the laws of the land and, and get some change happening there as well. Yes, definitely. And, you know, uh, just one last, I think I better get moving because I've got another appointment, but uh, one last thing I will 
discussed that is of huge importance and it's become one of my other drivers for this frantic travel and frantic trying to share the message, relates to the world's most widely used chemical. So the world's most widely used chemical is called glyphosate. Some people will know it as Roundup. It's the, there is no pharma. Um, even some of the organic guys, but I shouldn't say that, but certainly some of the spray-free guys are still using this, gly this glyphosate weed killer. And it's enabled and, and, and its support it has enabled things like no-till farming, which is actually in many ways better for the soil um, because you can just spray out the whole, the whole, the whole crop uh, and you don't have to till it. You just spray it out and then plant direct drill into what you sprayed out. But the problem is that we were told that it was this safe chemical that was completely biodegradable, and we now know that that is not the case. In fact, many people are calling Roundup the new DDT. Uh, there are many scientists saying, look, it makes DDT look like a kindergarten party. It is the absolute worst thing we ever did. Now, I ask farmers in every country that I travel, and I ask home gardeners who use Roundup with their shorts on out on their lawns, uh, and I say, you know, how, does, what, how do you think this chemical works? Well, no one actually knows its mode of action. And what I need to share with you is the mode of action and what that means to us. Yeah. Now, its mode of action is that it shuts down a pathway called the shikimate pathway, S-H-I-K, shikimate, S-H-I-K-I-M-A-T-E, shikimate pathway. And that pathway is responsible for building two or three amino acids that are absolutely essential for a fully functioning immune system for every creature except mammals. So the way that Monsanto sort of got it through this chemical was saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter about everything else because humans don't have a, mammals don't have a shikimate pathway. Now, this, so every other creature, so we're talking birds and we're talking fish and we're talking uh, microorganisms and the plant itself do have a shikimate pathway. And when you shut down that pathway, you shut down the immunity. How you kill the plant is that you shut down the plant's immune system and any opportunistic organism is what kills it. The chemical doesn't kill it. What, you know, this, the way you can test this is to take some soil, microwave it, which you should never do with your food, but if you had a microwave or, you know, put some kind of chemical, kill everything in that soil, then put, micro, um, put a plant into a pot in that soil that you've killed it, that you've neutralized, uh, and then spray Roundup on the plant. You can't kill the plant. It won't die unless there's an opportunistic pathogen in the soil because you've killed everything and there's not one there. It's the pathogen that kills it when you shut down the plant's immune system. Now, the fatal flaw in saying that humans don't have an immune system is that we have 100 trillion organisms living in our 30-foot tube called the digestive tract that do have a shikimate pathway. And when you've compromised your immune system, 85% of your immune system is down there learning from a bunch of organisms now who've got a completely compromised immune system because their shikimate pathway was shut down. And what you've got then is the fastest growing group of diseases on the planet, autism, sorry, <clears throat> The autoimmune disease is the fastest growing group, but autism's got close second. And the current rate of autism in 17 years' time, one out of every two children on the planet will be born with Well, in, no, sorry, in the U.S. will be born with autism. I mean, what are we going to be looking? No, it's 11 years, not 17. 11 years, one out of two at the current growth rate. What kind of world are we going to live in when half the world can't communicate with the other half? All that zombie. I mean, I shouldn't say that because, you know, autistic people aren't zombies. But I mean, it's like that kind of. There's going to be a. It's going to be a weird place to live in if we don't step in and do so. And now we find that it's hugely linked to glyphosate. Alzheimer's massively linked to glyphosate. In fact. There's just a massive long list, including the World Health Organization, the world's most conservative organization, you know, finally coming out and saying, yes, it's a carcinogen. It's a definite animal carcinogen and a probable human carcinogen, which means they know it gives a cancer, but they're too scared to say so because they've got to face Monsanto's lawyers. But um, it, it, it is, and it's everywhere. I mean, you're eating bread here, 
a lot of our dairy farm, a lot of our, uh, our broadacre farmers are spraying off, you know, eating meat. That's the sorghum that you feed them. You spray it off with glyphosate to dry it up quicker, to dehydrate it, to make it easier to harvest. Potatoes, they often use either glyphosate or um, diquat. It's a, a family from the paraquat family. It's a really vicious herbicide to, to kill off the... That's our most popular vegetable. So there's some really irresponsible stuff going down out there. And I'm considering to be, myself to be the whistleblower. I don't know how long I'll last doing this whistleblowing. But with the glyphosate story, we need to stand up and be counting. We need to pressure for the banning of that chemical. I mean, it's horrible. Farmers say we can't grow without it. Yes, you can. You all said you couldn't grow without DDT and you found you could. Mm -hmm. Human initiative will come up with other solutions. We're already coming up with other alternatives, um, uh, you know, including things like cover cropping and these things called roller crimpers that just bend over the plant. You know, if you slash a plant, you know, whether it's a weed or a, or a cover crop, uh, then it re-sprouts again. But if you bend it over, and now it can't feed the roots, and the roots can't feed the top half, so the plant dies, and that's called crimping. Then you have these huge rollers that crimp your weeds or your cover crop, and then you just direct drill into them. And then they serve as the sort of mulch layer that stops the weeds coming through. And so there are all these other ways that we can do things, but we need to start doing them, and we need to all step up to the plant so we don't want this food in our... This, this is probably the biggest link to most of our diseases, but it's that serious. Um, and it should never have happened. Uh, and we need to step in and say, look, this is not, we've, got to, we've got to put a stop to it. So we all need to sort of stand up and be counted. And as I say, there's no place for apathy in this context. Mm -hmm. Oh, Graham, this has been a very fascinating um, and interesting uh, conversation with you. And I really appreciate your time. I know that you have to get going now. Uh, but we will put um, some links up to your website, uh, ntshealth.com.au and nutritech.com.au. Um, any other ways that you uh, want people to either follow you or contact you? Well, yeah, there's, I've, I've got a blog that goes out to, to many tens of thousands of people and it seems to be really, really popular. Like the percentage of people who actually open it and read it is insanely high compared to most things. So they tell, so the analysts tell me. But it's not advertising. It's just it's going to be something about soil health or planetary health or animal health or your own health every week and people seem to really enjoy it so if you go to the website you can sign up for that blog and you get a free copy of my book when you sign up for the blog so it's probably worth the effort fantastic and um thank you again for your time next time you're in western australia i'll take you out for a beer if you have time sounds like fun to me all right thanks nice graham talking to you. okay cheers See ya. Bye. i think you can tell that graham is passionate about what he does and what he talks about so what's one thing that you can take away from today that you can put into action today? Because that's what it's all about, putting stuff into action. I hope that you can understand some of the urgency that he talks with, but also know that we are creative beings. We have solutions. We have solutions to our health, to climate change, uh, and to the problems around us. So check out the show notes. His websites are there. Uh, there's lots more notes. I'm getting more organized in that. And check out Instagram, hashtag probiotic life if you want to showcase what you are doing to live a probiotic life. And thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.
I just I just love microbes.